Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast where I, Talon Lee, he, him, and I, Fox Lee, she, her, watch all of the Disney Animated Canon from start to finish. Or at least until 2020. Until 2020? <laughs> then we shouldn't be watching this one. Is this not a 2019 release? No, this Did came out in... that up? I'm sorry. No, this came out in 2021. Shit. So they just skipped... What could have happened in 2020 that meant there was no cinematic release of an animated Disney movie? I wonder. That's right. Frozen 2 still would have been cinemas in 2020, except they pulled it early. Yeah. Right. Yep, that'll do it. Okay, so for those who don't know what movie we're talking about yet, this is apparently 2021's Raya and the Last Dragon. Mmm. But before we can tell you about what we think of this movie, I need to provide you a summary of the plot in 60 seconds. This might actually be a tricky one. There's a fair bit going on here. Let's see if we can do it, folks. Talon, your time starts now. In the long past, a MacGuffin was made. In the less long past, the MacGuffin was broken, releasing an ancient plague of bad feels that turned people to stone and traumatized our young heroine, Raya, who is the keeper of the MacGuffin and a self-progressed actual dragon nerd. Later, as a young adult, she goes on a journey of recovering the MacGuffin with Sisu, a MacGuffin-creating dragon that doesn't know how to craft the MacGuffin. Raya goes to the fire level, the money level, the ice level, and the water level, get the gems, and fights the recurrent bosses. Then the recurrent boss kills Sisu, which the story tries to frame as equally Raya's fault, because she tried to stop her. What an asshole. Then they do a bit of big heroic MacGuffin putty togethery stuff, where the recurrent boss character is left to show trust and we see everything fail, and they all die in a very merchandisable tableau. Only, oh no, of course they didn't, and they had trusted each other, so good. It's brought back, the other dragons brought back, and then all the other dragons were brought back, and then the water comes back, and then everybody claps. <laughs> I, uh, I, I take it you're not a huge fan of this. Honestly, I thought this was perfectly fine. <laughs> Just... Fairly broadly simple. Yeah. Well, needlessly complex, I would actually say. Ah. Well, maybe you can tell us more about that later. Uh, I don't think either of us have anything to say for a double take, so... Well, kind of, we do, in that you watched this before I did. You had a take, so... Hey, Fox, what's your prior experience with this movie all of a year ago? I mean, I was kind of cruising through it, because it was a year ago and nothing's changed. Yep. I guess the bit where they're children is even more annoying the second time you see it. <laughs> they're pretty annoying kids. There's only so much, like, super modern slang I can accept in a fantasy movie and super fan is a word i can't really get behind in this context dragon nerd dragon nerd yeah yeah but aside from that now on to the yikes door slash product of its time <laughs> well for one thing they say super fan <laughs> the big thing as far as the yikes door goes is i I mean, I've said this in the past. Australia is an Asian Pacific country that is doing everything in its power to pretend it's not here. Boy, are we. So, despite the fact that this is representing cultures and mythologies that are literally next door to us, I don't feel any confidence in passing opinion on how good or bad a job any of this was handled. And also, I'm cynical enough about Disney as to make the default assumption that they probably didn't do that good a job. Like, <laughs> it's almost certainly being filtered through American capitalist versions of this, and, you know, I'm just not au fait enough with the source material to really appreciate that. 
I don't mean to speak for the people who are happy about it or offended about it. It's just great big area of my own ignorance. And I'd rather draw attention to the fact that I don't know than to try and act like, well, I can tell they did a bad job because of these three things I hastily read <laughs> off Wikipedia. Right. Well, um, I likewise have to say that about my own experience, but uh, there is a reading of this film that makes me really uncomfortable, and since I noticed it the first time I watched it, I definitely can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also sort of the main body of my feeling about this movie, so I don't know if it belongs behind the Ike store, or if it's just my main thesis for this thing. And finally, here in the Ike store, there is definitely a very big part of this movie that is the product of its time, but I'm saving that to talk about in the animation and making and <laughs> capitalism stage of things. And you, you already know what it is. Okay, so I guess we're gonna spend the entire podcast exploring whether or not this movie is yikesy and or of its time. <laughs> Onward then to the animation and making, where my main thought is this looks really pretty. I love the color palette. I love the way it colors acts of the story. I glibly refer to them as, you know, the water level and the ice level and the money <laughs> level, but each different location has a really distinct set of colors and tones. And because they are visited in temporal sequence, the result is that the movie itself has this color coding sequence of the movie that gets more and more intense as the time goes on. Hmm. Now that you mention it, I wonder if that has anything to do with the, the fact that this had to be made, like, largely remotely. Like, this was the one they made with ISO in place. Uh, yeah, well, w the whole parking a bus problem, right? Like, bits of this movie were made before this movie was made. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure even if that is a factor, it's definitely not the only reason. It's also just they wanted these places to be strongly identifiable by their contrasts. Mm-hmm. I mean, they also clearly illustrated different ethnic groups for each of these. Uh, they have different, like, racial costumes and stuff, where they're obviously trying to create diversity, and color-coding it is a pretty easy, uh, yeah. easy in for that. And we know that they say it's a South Asian thing. Like, that's how Disney describes it, as a South Asian fable. The thing is, South Asia, which usually means every part of Asia that isn't India, China, and <laughs> Mongolia, because India and China is a third of the world's population, and Mongolia is there as, it, as those two bulks of population's Happy Meal. But you have basically Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia, and a whole host of other countries that I should be better at rattling off off the top of my head, but genuinely can't because there's a lot of them and we did a colonialism quite extensively in the area quite extensively so and also there's a fair bit of like actual china going on here as well like. it, well that's the thing maybe i i possibly i genuinely don't know like the blend but like i looked at that and went that looks kind of chinese to me but then my brain went this could be cambodian and you wouldn't know no, like, I mean, we get a lot of, like, jungly visual, yeah. but I know China is a big-ass land yeah. with a diverse range of climates. Like, I'm used to people thinking about Australia and going, oh, it's all, you know, hot and dry, and then there's the opera house. And, like, every time I watch someone do GeoGuessr, yeah. the first place they land is like, well, this could be Australia. There's nothing about it that means it couldn't be. There's just a lot of shit going on. 
in this case, the thing that stood out to me that's really, like, the world thing that confuses me is the frozen bamboo forest. Because my mental association with that is northern China, Tibet, Mongolia, and all that stuff is, you know, much farther north than I would expect. But also, I couldn't tell you any of the mountains in Indonesia. So, are there mountains in Indonesia? Maybe? I don't know. Do archipelagos get mountains? Well, I mean, Hawaii does, but, you know, do, what do I know about this stuff? I think islands are pretty decent at having mountains. I mean, islands aside from us. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a mountain worth spinning, but <laughs> it's true. But hey, at least our mountain's bigger than England's. But yeah, like, this movie is really pretty. I like the way it looked. I like the way it used that kind of aqua blue color scheme as the primary visual motif of heart. And then once that faded, that color scheme kind of vanished from the movie, except on Sisu specifically. And then it's the everything is okay again color scheme coming back right at the end. That's very cool. Yeah. Like, the summary may have made it sound like I don't like this movie, uh, but this movie's got stuff going on. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. I wish I'd noticed that more myself. I think you're very, very correct there. At the same time, I think that opening with a flashback to a myth, which is then told further in flashback to a different (laughs) period, which then flashes to the now, is just... I take a second draft. Come on. (laughs) It it is kind of funny that it essentially opens with the, like, record scratch. Mm -hmm. That's me. I bet you're wondering what I'm doing here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh... You know, I'm sure they had to cut some corners because of the circumstances, but... It's almost a parody when it opens like that. The voice talent is a range of mostly Asian actors. Um, There is, I understand, some politics that I'm not part of about who should be providing these voices, who could have been providing these voices, based on who has a more legitimate claim to the locations that they're meant to be representing. I'm not discounting that conversation, it's just... I would just be parroting things I'd heard. I wouldn't be providing my own, you know, take on it. And I wouldn't be being an expert in the first place. Like, I would need to do quite a bit of readings to work out where we land on all this and if there's any history that makes this awkward. We're uh, just going to be glad that they're not whitewashing it. Yeah. Um, Alan Tudyk's in this. <laughs> Is he Tuck Tuck? He's Tuck Tuck. Cool. Um, but the voice acting does have the interesting quirk, which ties back to product of its time. We say park, I I say parking a bus when talking about these big movies. The animation was done well before the shutdowns happened. All of it. The things that needed to be done after that point in the last stages is usually finishing effects and fine tuning animation. That makes sense. There's probably a whole lot of editing. uh, Tons and tons. Most of what had to be done from home. Tons and tons of that and also tons and tons of post-processing. Yeah. You know, making it so that two shots that were, even though they're rendered on the same engines, like, these need to look like they come from the same camera, and you don't get that until you have the final shot. Um, but in this case, one of the things that gets finished last is the final run of the voice acting. And so they've gotten to the point now where they just animate off a, a first uh, take, as it were, yeah. and then go back for another pass later. Apparently so. Which means that the voice acting for the bulk of this movie was done in-home, work-from-home conditions for the voice actors, which included an isolation tent that Aquafina made, 
Kelly Marie Tran's boyfriend built a makeshift sound booth. Is that Kelly Marie Tran? Yep. Oh, that's cool. Uh, who incidentally is only who, who incidentally started on voice acting because she was inspired by Ming Na Wen doing Mulan. That's so cool. that's sick. And um, a couple of people did the classic voice acting trick of recording inside a closet. Oh, good lord. Well, I i mean, it's a credit to their sound engineers that this, like, you don't watch this and go, well, this sounds fucking weird. I don't know what's up with that. The producer believes that Raya is the largest scale film recorded remotely to date. I would believe that. I mean, I'm not overly familiar with other pandemic productions, but... I could see the case that the uh, amateur production of Princess Bride... May have gone over that, but that's also a very amateurish production, so... I Well, that's why I'm thinking larger scale is is part of this. Like, mm-hmm. that's not just the number of people involved. That's also the, the scope of the finished product, I would think. And this is a finished product. Um, is it is uh, Jim Cummings our, our big warrior dude? You mean Tom? Yes. He's Benedict Wong, who you probably won't recognize as a name, but if I show you him in a movie, you'll be, oh... He's the big scary guy who kicks the shit out of people and doesn't talk much in a lot of the DVDs I own. Huh. Oh, there you go. That's unusual to see. It's a, have someone like that in a voice-only role. Yeah. That's kind of neat. It's rad as hell. He's got extremely similar to, to Jim Cummings doing big warrior guy energy, I must say. Yep. Uh, but yeah, like broadly speaking, this is going to be a bunch of names that you probably wouldn't recognize, like Daniel Day Kim. Well, I've, I've also recognized two of them, which is more than I expected, actually. <laughs> um, uh, not not that I know who Aquafina is, I just know that name. Yeah. Like, I know that's someone important and famous. The kids probably like them on the top tick. <laughs> so that, that'd be Sisu, right? Yeah. And Kelly Marie Tran is, is Raya? Raya, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beyond that, the other thing would be to mention the music, which unfortunately for me didn't land anywhere like i couldn't hum you the refrain from this movie uh it's a very good score doing very good cinematic score work um i i wish this had been a musical i would have been quite interested to see these characters sing it never gets to take the center stage the way that musical soundtracks do though no the close thing we get is is some dancing effectively from sisu where she does this cool roving in the sky thing that, you know what, that's going to be one of my animation and making notes. I love how they animated the dragons. I do not love all the designs for the dragons. I think they are a bit too Disney-fied, a bit too let's make toys out of this. Yeah. And make sure they appeal to little girls. But uh, uh, the the animation of the, the cool big long sneaky bodies and the running through the air and making it feel, you know, convincing enough that you're like, yeah, that's how a cool dragon would move through the air if they didn't fly. They just kind of danced. The magic sky ferret design <laughs> is... You're right, it's, it's very Disney. I don't know how good it, it feels. To be fair, the, the, the ferretiness of it is is not... that. That's not Disneyfication. That's well, just how these dragons look, right? Yeah, my, my point is that to me they evoked you know, wonderful magic sky ferrets, and I like that. But also, I don't know how they should work or should <laughs> move. So, uh, yeah, that looks cool. I, I don't trust Disney. <laughs> when I talk about Disneyfication here, I'm very much talking about the faces. Like, you've ah. seen traditional art of these. Um, 
not necessarily from every culture that is contributing to the overall aesthetic of this film, but uh, in plenty of them, um, and they're much more like conventionally monstrous. These are they they get a fair bit of that sort of My Little Pony ish kind of cartoonification going on. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and I I liked the original designs a bit better when they they still had like the fangs and whiskers and stuff going on. So here's my thing. My thing is, uh, every time this movie was presented to me, like everything I saw about it, it was very much billed as another China Disney movie. Ah. Do you mean China as in the location or China as in the market? Both. Oh, okay. Yeah, go on. And here's my thing that makes me uncomfortable about it. Because if you approach it from that idea... And I absolutely admit that I did. What I got was a movie that's about a bunch of distinct ethnic groups <laughs> where four out of five of them are untrustworthy bastards and the group that has everything the best and has the most power and is objectively better people than everyone else. All the others are jealous of them. And that's really unreasonable because they they don't have magic. They don't have anything special. They're in the best position because they're just the better people. And no one else understands that they just need to let go of that jealousy and come back and reunite <laughs> under that one main central group. Who do have magic, but that's not why you should do this. They do. It's not their magic, though. They didn't benefit from it. Oh. They're just good, hardworking people who did things right instead of being awful in the aftermath. Yeah, it's it's really hard for me to not see this film as kind of pandering toward the the Han Chinese narrative of we're not really distinct ethnic groups. The one China. We're just a one people. Yeah, and and you know, if we're in the majority, it's just because we're right. Not because we had an unfair advantage or anything like that. And you all just need to understand that. That also manages to filter it through the American white people vision of, well, we could all just get along if you lot would stop making it a problem. Yeah. Ooh. So that's that's why I have always felt a bit yikesy about this movie. And I've alluded to this a couple of times yeah. on the podcast before. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I like I didn't get that as my first impression. Because I was busy looking at this in terms of like, how do you do a whistle stop tour? through <laughs> Malaysia, right. Indonesia, yeah. Cambodia, all those countries, especially because Indonesia has hundreds of distinct cultural groups in it because there are 200 million Indonesians. It's a really populous country. And just the, and, and the histories here date back so far back that we have, we have like, this is one of the reasons why I get really crappy about lost civilization narratives because you know, people are living in lost civilizations right now. <laughs> They're right over there. You can visit them on a it's day more trip. Of, more of like a found civilization, really. Yeah, yeah. And and it plays back into the idea of like, well, where could these ruins have come from? What mysterious peoples could have built them? Definitely not the people who are living here right now. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons Moana kind of stands out amongst these narratives, because it is at least about a person from that culture discovering their own cultural history. Yeah. Instead of someone from elsewhere sweeping on in and going, oh, look at all the things I've found. Yeah. 
I, I definitely can see the way that that makes this whole thing feel very awkward. And I think that that's a valid... I, I, I like that particularly because it's a kind of invisible ink. Because odds are good, you would get this. It's the same way that I thought when you brought this in, like this is a China marketed movie, that I thought this is going to be about the potential vision of a queer coded narrative that then very pointedly got skirted <laughs> in the way that yeah. right now American consumers tell themselves is China's fault. Yeah, there's a very common narrative of, you know, oh, well, the American media would be gayer, but, you know, they have to make their money in China, so they can't be explicit <laughs> about the gay. So, you know, just throwing you sprinklings of, of tidbits and hinting and, like, just incredibly queer coding our villain in this movie. Oh, my God. I love her fucking style. Live slug reaction. <laughs> okay. Uh, hilarious. Is, is, is that one on the Tumblr talks? <laughs> yeah, uh, so I think this is a great example of the way that encoding and decoding a movie is a task of the individual. The things and the biases you bring to the story are going to make it matter to you more. Uh, I, for example, found the entire idea that Namari and Raya were equally to blame for Sisu getting shot, which this movie definitely seems to think is a valid argument. Oh, they straight up say that. It comes from uh, from Tamari at a very important moment. It's clearly supposed to be correct. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fucking horseshit, and that maybe the person who loaded a crossbow, brought a crossbow, pointed a crossbow at someone and pulled the trigger of a crossbow may have more of the responsibility for what <laughs> that crossbow did. I didn't necessarily disagree with it at the time. I didn't necessarily disagree with it at the time when they say it in the movie but now that you bring it up i mean if we are to say that like it, it was ultimately raya's fault as well because she just couldn't bring herself to trust uh i called her tamari earlier didn't i namari yeah uh in that crucial moment um but who gave raya her trust issues <laughs> that yeah. is entirely namari's fault yeah. actually so uh, bit more her fault just a little bit more yeah like namari gets through this being forgiven and hugged by a dragon god that is literally here to fix the world because namari specifically is responsible for the whole world breaking but she is not shown as being you know equally responsible for that one but equally responsible to raya for the death of sisu and like i just think that's a crap narrative i think that that's even if you want to say these two characters are equally responsible for this thing, you didn't demonstrate that to me in this movie. You, There are ways you can definitely do party A and party B, both thinking they're operating in the correct way, wind up doing something terrible together because they didn't trust one another. I don't think they did it here. If you had just not had her pull the crossbow, if you had... Like, if you had done something like, well, you know, Raya's in hiding or something, and Sisu's supposed to meet her, and, you know, she she can't bring herself to trust her at the last moment, so she pulls a weapon, and then, then the crossbow goes off, kind of. Like, there's ways you could do that scene where it's not really Namari's fault in the same way. But the way that they chose, it's definitely not an equal responsibility kind of situation. So that means that the moral center of one of the major scenes kind of falls flat, but oh well, a movie yeah. can handle having a crap bit. I probably just didn't notice it because I liked Amari too much. Well, 
She's got such good shorts. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I wish I had had character designs like that when I was nine. That's all I'm saying. Tapping mic sound, tapping mic sound, because I'm definitely <laughs> not tapping the fucking mic. Stop it. Uh, Your Honor, the prosecution would like to forward into evidence. Girl hot. No, no. <laughs> oh, no, it's true. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know what? I Girl is hot. And girl is clearly supposed to be sympathetic and a good person. So really, it's the movie fucked up. Yeah. By failing to deliver quite well enough. Yep. On, on that. And while you're at it. Uh, don't be fucking cowards. They should clearly be girlfriends. <laughs> I mean, this barely even feels like queer baiting by the end of it because I'm just so used to being cynical about this at this point. Like, it would feel like queer baiting if I had for a moment fallen for it. <laughs> like, They're not gonna do it. They're not gonna do it. Stop pretending. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so I... It's awkward to talk about the the one china uh impression because i i might be showing my entire ass here like maybe someone who's a lot for, more familiar with uh, the the various other cultures that we could be looking at here would be like no you fucking moron obviously <laughs> none of this has any bearing on like mainland china what is wrong with you how is that not obvious um and it's like if if this is supposed to be based a lot more on, on like South Asian cultures and specifically not on China, then, uh, you know, maybe that's a completely mistaken reading, which would be nice. <laughs> Either way, I don't expect that it's deliberate pandering so much as it's just a narrative which fits the typical kind of story they'd try and tell um, that just happens to dovetail into that pretty well. Um, so I'm not, you know, this is not me going full conspiracy theory or anything. <laughs> That's not how media works anyway. No, media is it. It's a reading. Yeah, media is about encoders and decoders and... That's a very reasonable decoding, and the thing is, a lot of people might never even realize it, especially people in the United States, even the people who might have made this movie, because the fact that there is a group in China that is racist to other Chinese isn't something that enters almost any conversation about racism. Right, yeah. And especially, like... Which which isn't to say, hey, Americans, you need to talk about the way that the Han people are dicks to the rest of China more. Because, no, you really don't. If you're not an expert, <laughs> don't get started. It's a lot more along the lines of, like, wouldn't it be great if your own house was clean enough that you could <laughs> care about the nuances of other people's racism? Yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> look at me overstepping my bounds of fucking white UK-descended Australians sitting here going, well, I'm comfortable. Yeah, well, you gotta remember, I'm the child of a refugee and ain't nobody ever tried to run a news story about how I'm ruining the country. Anyway, shall we skate on away for our own shames towards whatever land? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do, let's do. I make a lot of fun of world building. Uh... On, on my various media commentary forms. Um, I, I don't enjoy deep lore in the way that a lot of fans do. I find it kind of tedious and frustrating a lot of the time. But I think this movie, aside from the, like, you know, the setup in flashback and all that shit, that's not what I'm talking about. But there's a lot of little things that I really like as 
uh, texture in the world building. Uh, like the gesture that people assume when they're turned to stone. Yeah. Being a uniform one, which turns out to be waiting for rain, which is just just very cool. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that the, the forming a circle with the hands is what the dragons do to form the gem in the first place. And this is turned into like a religious, uh, like it's a prayer gesture, but also like a respect gesture that is shared by all these groups. Even though they clearly did not see any dragons do this to make a gem, so they've gotten it from somewhere else, so maybe it's like a general gesture that came, comes from before that or whatever. Little things like that I really like about this movie. How did you feel about the the swears and the casual language, like uh, the, the meaning of Dipala? Yeah. Take or leave, I don't know. So Dipala is Vietnamese for you beauty, huh. but it's apparently meant in the movie to mean more like friend. So, just, you know, they were roommates. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm neither in nor out on fantasy slang, and I'm very about fantasy slang that directly maps to real world languages. Um, so I, would, I don't know how I feel about that. I would be, but the thing is, if they said it in Mexico and the characters didn't use Mexican slang, I would be kind of like, that's a bit weird. Well, but it's not set in actual South Asia. It's, it's set right. in, what's You're it right. called? Kamandi? Kamari? Kimuri. No, Kimuri's the scar band. No, <laughs> anyway, yes, them. Uh, yes. The point is, yeah. Why can't I remember? They say it so many times. Because a bunch <laughs> of this movie is forgettable. It is lightly forgettable. You're not wrong. Kamandra! Kamandra, that's right. Which sounds a lot more like Indian than than most of what we've been talking about. Know a lot of Cambodian words? Well, that's true. <laughs> I couldn't name three Cambodian spices, let alone Cambodian words. I have, however, a, a slightly more juicy morsel for my whatever land, which is before the movie was done, Kelly Marie, Kelly Marie Tran was shipping the two leads. Good the fuck on her! Yeah, uh, she obviously doesn't get to say, hey, maybe make a scene where they kiss obviously in the movie. Not. But, uh, quote, I think if you're a person watching this movie and you see representation that feels real and authentic to you, then it's real and authentic. I think that might get me in trouble <laughs> for saying that, but whatever. <laughs> Which is, you know, extremely the coward's way out for Disney to let that lie. But also, Raya says, by rights, I guess. I mean... We don't see Raya take interest in any dudes. It's true. I just assume by until proven guilty. Well, yes, but I don't need to see representation to assume that. That's my <laughs> default state for all media. Uh, yeah, and frankly, uh, Kelly Marie Tran can can say anything she fucking wants uh, about a Disney movie. And <laughs> since Disney are sniveling cowards who failed to give her yeah. any kind of adequate support, in the wake of Star Wars fans being the worst people in the universe. Um, if if the worst thing she did was be like, well, you know, I'm just saying, they can't stop you from deciding it's queer, uh, then they should consider that they got off fucking lightly. <laughs> All right, then. Now, capitalism. Fox. Do you think this made more or less than Frozen 2? <laughs> I didn't like the movie that much, but now I'm going to feel really bad for it when it only makes like half as much as Frozen 2. Because this all did this also didn't get a proper cinema release, right? This had to release the Disney Plus. Oh no, it did get a cinematic release. It did? 
So I'm just looking at box office take. Okay. Um. <laughs> God, it's so hard to think about this. I, I assume we're also including people who prepaid the ridiculous fee to watch it when it launched on Disney Plus. Just box office. Just actual physical box office. Yep. Did you think it made more or less than Frozen 2? The most successful film of all time. I mean, I have to say less, but yeah, the good, way good, you're yeah. presenting it, like, <laughs> like, I was almost expecting you to say more, just just to fuck with me. Frozen 2 made 1.5 billion. Yeah. This is, I, I, it's cynical, but I feel like this has got to be down under a billion. 130 million. It made 130 what? million. Okay, okay. That's got to be pandemic numbers then. That is that's, pandemic numbers. That's just nobody could go and see this in a cinema. There's yeah. no way that. This this yeah. movie got a cinematic release. Uh, it was the only way for Southeast Asian countries to see it. Thanks. Great. Good timing there, Disney. Um, <laughs> oh, keen. So they didn't have their... Uh... They didn't get it's Disney. just that they didn't have Disney Plus Live there they in don't these countries. They don't have Disney Plus there yet. Yeah. Uh, right. So, great work there. Um, that's just box office sales. That doesn't account for all the people who were convinced to spend $30 to stream it in home. I can't fucking believe how much they tried to charge for this. 30 USD. That's so much money, man. That's more than a family's worth of movie tickets. Now, that's absurd. Once it went from being a $30 purchase to being just streamed, its viewership uh, skyrocketed. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got Disney Plus anyway. They're not going to not watch it. It's just not going to pay more than the price of a DVD. Yep. To watch it one time. The movie was the third most streamed movie title of 2021, though. Christ. Behind Luca. And Moana. <laughs> Ooh, that's a flex. <laughs> Shit. Also, Akamai reported in January 22 that they consider this to be the ninth most pirated film of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that's a... Yeah. I don't know how you begin to, to make those numbers work under any circumstance, but I mean, what they chose was not it. Yeah, and yeah, this this is the first pay. <clears throat> this is the pandemic Disney movie. This one was not curtailed by it. This is not the last of the before times. This is what a Disney release looks like in the pandemic times, where it got made in part in people's closets and it didn't make its budget back officially. But it definitely made its budget back. Like yeah. lots of people signed up to Disney Plus. Yeah, I guess that's the real problem, right? Like, how do you measure the impact a film has on a streaming service? Like, you can't. It's not even as simple as going, "Well, we check how many people watched it on yeah. Disney Plus," because then it's like there's a lot of people who might not have bothered to pay to see it specifically, but are definitely going to watch it if it's there already. The metric they use to measure success of a streaming service across different platforms, so Netflix's numbers versus Disney numbers, is minutes streamed <laughs> well yeah but it's very hard to turn that into actual yeah. monetary value is is the problem all you can tell is this number is bigger than that number and you can't tell how many people signed up how many people did or how many people are borrowing things like you can't tell the difference between a hate watch that happened because i was already paying for this and a thing that made me choose this service rather than stan or whatever yeah and there's a bunch of metrics you can do to try and tease that information out 
But like, you have to try and tease it out. That's the thing. Like, for example, you can measure the time between someone booting the app up and getting to the movie as a measurement of eagerness. <laughs> Were they browsing a bunch of stuff yeah. and then went, oh, that's here. I'll watch that. Or did they boot it up and type in Last Dragon now? Blah. <laughs> and you can see that kind of thing. And also, do they rewatch it? Have they watched the first few minutes multiple times? That's a thing that can happen in streaming services, which is why they tend to compact it all together into minutes streamed in total with Raya getting 8.3 billion minutes streamed which right yeah yeah you know for a, for a 90 minute movie well it's a two hour movie but the point is but for a movie that's you know that is basically everyone in America watched it a couple of times which is pretty good yeah and you know obviously that's a bunch of 8 year olds watched it 13 times but... yeah absolutely oh god Sorry, I just had this moment. I've never before considered uh, the impact of streaming services on that period in your life when you will just watch your the same thing movie over and over and over again, over and over and over again. Yeah, because like we, I did that kids. with like Aladdin and stuff. Yeah, but that was almost the only thing I did it with because that was the only time where it was like I am happy to watch a thing repeatedly, just on loop like that, and I can afford to buy myself the videotape. Yep. And there's enough time where the VCR is free <laughs> that I could watch it that many times. Screen like, independence. None of that matters anymore. Yeah. Damn. Kids often have phones that aren't phones. They're yeah. just Wi-Fi screens in their house. Mm -hmm. And that's sick as hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I realize I'm not like this is not a new idea to anyone. It's just that's the first time. I have considered experiences in my own life relative to what it would be like to do that now. And it's wild. Absolutely bonkers. <laughs> well, that's the second last one, Fox. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, I guess since we're this far in, we can, we, we've pretty much decided that we will end the Disney animated cannonball on 2021's Encanto. See you next time, folks. Sure hope this doesn't have any complicated emotional themes that might make the final episode a bit of a raucous one. <laughs> well, neither of us have seen it yet, so we're gonna find out. <laughs>